The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. What a friggin' candy-ass, lying, hypocritical, self-contradicting, little paranoid snowflake Elon Musk is. My commitment to free speech, the new Stalin of Twitter wrote on November 6th, extends to not banning the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk. Then he banned the account following his plane. Musk then banned the kid, Jack Sweeney, and his account at Elon Jet. And he is a kid. He's a teenager. He's a college freshman. The account he had just posted about not banning. He did this after first trying to bribe Sweeney. And after the kid had had the audacity to propose a compromise in which the information was delayed in some way. Then, Wednesday night, Musk put out some story about some guy in a car following another car that supposedly was connected to his, Musk's family. Then the guy got on top of Musk's family's car's hood. And Musk stated as if fact that it all happened, if it happened, only because of information gleaned from the at Elon Jet account. And he promised legal action as being taken against Sweeney and organizations who supported harm to my family. Musk's hyperbolic panic about this has since grown from my commitment to free speech extends to not banning the account following my plane to, quote, they posted my exact real-time location, basically assassination coordinates, unquote. As the impeccable Philip Bump of the Washington Post writes, identifying the location of an airplane provides assassination coordinates to, like, the operator of a Patriot missile battery. I give Phil's account to like Saturday at lunchtime. 
And by the way, this I was on that plane, Muskie and Bleat, this contradicts Musk's earlier claim that he wasn't on that plane, tracked by Sweeney's account. On Wednesday, Mush had also promised any account doxing real-time location info of anyone will be suspended. And then he tweeted video purportedly of the driver who purportedly was driving near the Musk family car. It panned down to the license plate of the car and it asked, Musk asked everybody on Twitter, quote, anybody recognize this person or car? Disseminating the license plate and asking for an ID of the car or the license plate or the person, that is the legal definition of doxing. And interestingly, there is, as of this recording, no criminal case known nor complaint filed in Los Angeles where Musk claims this took place, nor in fact any evidence that it did take place. Then Jack Sweeney opened another tracking account at Elon Jet at Mastodon, Mastodon, one of the rivals for Twitter. And remember, all the flight information is publicly available. It's completely legal promulgated by hundreds of websites and social media accounts. The info has been used to track everybody from Russian oligarchs to baseball free agents. At this point, last night, things escalated and Elon Musk suddenly did his Thelma and Louise bit into the Grand Canyon of Twitter. Other Twitter users, including prominent liberals like the independent gadfly journalist Aaron Rupar, reported on at Elon Jet at Mastodon, linked to it, and the purge began. Rupar was permanently suspended without ever being notified why by Twitter. Drew Harwell of the Washington Post then wrote, Twitter just suspended a competitor's account at Join Mastodon because it posted a link to its own website's version of at Elon Jet, public legally acquired data that Twitter decided two days ago was against the rules. Loving the free speech, he added. Harwell attached screenshots. Harwell, it turned out, had emailed Musk on Tuesday about why Musk had reinstated a series of prominent QAnon accounts. Musk had replied simply, LOL. Harwell is not an independent. He is of the Washington Post, and you would think Musk would empathize with the Washington Post, since it is owned by another mega-rich guy named Jeff Bezos, and they must have a club, or a secret handshake, or a treehouse, or something. Harwell was then permanently banned without notification or explanation. We would need a forensic pathologist to get the sequence exactly right, but Musk apparently then banned CNN reporter Donnie O'Sullivan, who had interviewed the Elon Jet at Mastodon guy Sweeney, and his grandmother, without being notified or being told why again. And either right before Donnie got hit or right after it, Musk also banned Ryan Mack, who is the tech reporter at the New York Times. Neither the Times nor Ryan have received any explanation about why this occurred, said a spokesman for the gray lady. This is when I got whacked. I'd love to say I was that guy in the Godfather movie, in the baptism scene, Philip Tatalia who Michael Corleone Musk's henchman machine-gunned while he was in bed with the lady with not so many clothes on. But frankly, I was just sitting here icing my torn rotator cuff and reading Twitter and getting more and more pissed off 
And I suggested on Twitter we should do a mass protest requiring only a few quick steps. I tweeted, so here's a plan. A, everybody RT the screenshot that apparently got the account of Drew Harwell of the Washington Post suspended. B, and recreate the tweet word for word with the link. C, and link to Aaron Rupar's piece that got him permanently suspended. I knew what I was doing here. Elon Musk has already proved himself on Twitter and everywhere else he's ever worked, including Tesla and the rest of these crazy ideas like the invention of the subway and the tunnel. He has already proved himself not much of a businessman, certainly nothing resembling a free speech absolutist and not very good with truth or even explaining why he changed his mind, if he has one. I expected a suspension or a ban for doing this, but at this point, I was in for a surprise. When I went to post that link, mastodon.social slash at Elon Jet, a notice automatically came up on Twitter reading, tweet not sent. Your tweet couldn't be sent because this link has been identified by Twitter or our partners as being potentially harmful. So I broke the link into words, and I tweeted it anyway, and I added, you literally can't tweet the Mastodon link, which is, and then I broke it into words. My protest thread continued, five, and whoever is still left here to address the suspensions of Donnie O'Sullivan of CNN and Ryan Mack, RT what happened to them. See you on the other side, friends. And then I, I posted a little video of the end of Dr. Strangelove where the cowboy rides the atomic bomb straight down to the target. Within minutes, my account was suspended. Then it popped back into service briefly, and I replied to some tweets and retweeted some others. Then that stopped. Then the notice changed to, your account is permanently suspended. After careful review, we determined your account broke the Twitter rules. Your account is permanently in read-only mode, which means you can't tweet, retweet, or like content. Incidentally, they're wrong about that. I just checked again. Yes, I'm a Twitter ghost, but I can still retweet and like. And read the latest ad for a sequined Bolivian throwing dagger. Available now for just $19 or three for $22. Within an hour, the rest of Don Musclione's targets were gushing blood all over the nice clean sheets of the Twitter morgue. The Twitter account of the Mastodon site, gone. Matt Binder from Mashable, gone. Michael Lee from The Intercept, gone. Tony Webster, another gadfly, gone. Steve Herman from The Voice of America. And congratulations, Elmo, The Voice of America. The Voice of America has now been banned by you and the Kremlin. A little after 9 Eastern, Elon Musk tweeted about all this. Criticize me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. I retweeted that from my dog's account, adding, None of us doxed you, Snowflake. Which is exactly, literally, true. And it's true for Victim Zero here as well, Jack Sweeney of the Elon Jet account. And I also sent Apartheid Clyde back a copy of his tweet about how his commitment to free speech extending to not banning Sweeney's account, a commitment that will last a lunchtime. Happily, even people who would be dictators, whether of a country, an industry, or a social media website, can never actually shut down all the critics, nor especially all the leakers. Richard Nixon learned this, so did Trump, and so now has Musk. 
The account bans were labeled direction of Ella in Twitter's internal systems, reported the Washington Post last night, according to two former employees in contact with Twitter's staff. You got another leak, Elon. And no, Ella is not what Elon calls himself whenever he goes to his happy place. To again quote the Post, she is Ella Irwin, the company's head of trust and safety, who has carried out many of Musk's orders since he purchased the company in late October and began upending its rules in the name of what he called, quote, free speech, unquote. Bravo, Washington Post. So this Ella is the Chris Licht of Twitter. Ella Irwin, the always useful LinkedIn advises us, has a 20-year career in things like marketplace abuse, consumer trust, global trust and policy, that places like Amazon and Google and eHarmony and... Wait, eHarmony? Well, she's flushed all that in terms of a career down the drain. Happily before that, Ella was a call center operations manager at Great Western Bank in Northridge, California, and I understand they are hiring again, Ella. Ella Irwin has not tweeted on her own since December 9th. Her account is Ella G. Irwin. She did issue a brief statement to the website The Verge. Quote, without commenting on any specific accounts, I can confirm that we will suspend any accounts that violate our privacy policies and put other users at risk. Unquote. Now, not referring to specific accounts was prudent because claiming that Donnie O'Sullivan or Aaron Rupar or me or the voice of America quote, put other users at risk is slander and, to it, legally actionable. Oh, and thanks, by the way, to the media magazine Variety. Their headline of this story reads, reads, (laughs) Twitter suspends accounts of Keith Olbermann, Aaron Rupar, and more journalists who cover Elon Musk. I would be embarrassed at top billing in this, considering I was just in the background here, but, you know... Ego is ego. Seriously, this kind of purge was, of course, inevitable. It is hard to believe Twitter could have gone downhill from where it was six weeks or six months or six years ago, but it has plummeted like a safe in a Roadrunner cartoon. Racism, misogyny, threats, inducements to violence, anti-LGBTQ scumbaggery, and actual doxing have exploded on Twitter, and ads are everywhere. They used to be for cars and computers and travel, and now they're for sequined throwing daggers. We, seriously, at this podcast, we were going to buy a brief campaign on Twitter to reach likely listeners who were not following me there for whatever reason. We looked at the lay of the land on Twitter and we canceled the buy. The buy was exactly $500. American, Twitter is not worth $500 anymore. The big news organizations who are actually the backbone of news Twitter aren't happy. And what else is there on Twitter? There's a Korean boy band Twitter. There's Wint Drill Twitter. And there's News Twitter. Quote, Twitter's increasing instability and volatility should be of incredible concern for everyone who uses Twitter, said a CNN spokesperson after the suspension of Donnie O'Sullivan. CNN says it has asked Twitter for an explanation and would, quote, reevaluate our relationship based on that response. Flatly, barring an immediate reversal of this by Muskie 
and the appointment of some grown-up to run the place in his stead, any news organization that remains on Twitter or lets its journalists continue to tweet is taking its own reputation in its hands. Now, it would be cathartic to go on a full rant against Musk, but what exactly would be the point of that? Only he and the right-wing vermin that he let back onto the website and the Republicans he endorsed after claiming he was politically neutral and that his attempt to memory hold January 6th as some sort of false flag or big tech censorship moment, either coincidentally with or in coordination with Trump, only they actually buy that all this was some sort of free speech triumph. Only they believe he is acting responsibly or consistently or even just as an adult. He's just another moneyed nitwit, although he seems to have dedicated himself to burning as much of that money on fire as quickly as he can in a way that might make even Kanye West say, dude, hey, hold on a moment. As for the washed-up fascists, Musk resuscitated like Glenn Greenwald and Tom, can't somebody find me a shirt that fits me so my nipples don't poke through it fitting, celebrating the bans. A month ago, they were denying Twitter had any right to ban anybody for any reason at all. They were the people who hallucinated that there was one set of rules for right-wing Twitter and one set of rules for left-wing Twitter. They are now celebrating the fact that there now really is one set of rules for right-wing Twitter and one set of rules for left-wing Twitter. They should remember that with the consistency this Musk wipe has shown recently, next week, we will all be back and they will all be suspended. But I did want to point one thing out here in conclusion. The bottom line here is this. Elon Musk just isn't very bright. I realize that the fascists he's been pandering to are not very bright either, but still, if on April 25th you tweet, as Musk did, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means, and not eight months later you fabricate a flimsy excuse to ban your critics and your competitors. You have to have somebody around you who is willing to remind you that this is not mission impossible here. Your old tweets don't automatically self-destruct in 10 seconds. Hell, on November 22nd, no, this November 22nd, Elon Musk wrote, As is obvious to all but the media, there is not one permanent ban on even the most far-left account. Well, I don't know about that. I'd ask those most far-left account holders, but we all got banned last night. Still ahead, okay, quite seriously, I did tear my rotator cuff quite a while ago, which is why Thursday's countdown was an encore edition about my late dog Mishu and my dog Stevie. The whole tear thing is actually going great, but we had to move to more aggressive rehab on Wednesday, and believe it or not, my typing hand ended up going numb. Now it's just sore and suspended. I don't want to act like a martyr here, but uh, who am I kidding? I always want to act like a martyr here. But since we are both still here, for several minutes last night, I was thinking, I wonder if Elon Musk suspended us as a diversion so nobody would remember Trump making a fool out of himself with those cartoon baseball cards, which was also only yesterday. 
Some thoughts on that, and it is After All Fridays with Thurber, so listen to the rest of this. Listen to the rest of the podcast, all right? I'm playing in pain here. That's next. This is Countdown. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. 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 This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann, my crazy friend. Uh, You know, this is Countdown with, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Why not? So I'm going to give myself credit here. On Wednesday, when Trump burped out news of his major announcement that had something to do with America needing a superhero, I tweeted, remember Twitter? It's some animated cartoon version of him, isn't it? Which would be goddamned funny since he's already the cartoon version of him. 
I was so close. Digital trading cards of Trump at $99 a piece that show him dressed up in a series of outfits he could never fit in in real life. This was the lead story till all of us got suspended from Twitter. And again, I keep thinking, did Musk do that just so we'd forget about these Trump cards? The illustrations on the cards are, to say the least, unfortunate. Even Republicans are saying this is not a serious person. He clearly did not look at them before they were released. One illustration has him revealing some sort of Superman shirt only with the letter T instead of the letter S on it. And there are rays coming out of his eyes as he stands in front of Trump Tower. But due to unfortunate cropping of the image, it instead reads not Trump Tower, but Rump Towel. There's another one with him dressed up as a race car driver. Vroom, vroom. Only the baseball cap he's wearing does not fit. And for some reason, it says Texas over his crotch. Another illustration has him in a cowboy duster with mountains behind him. And if you look closely enough, it appears that there are two horses in the background having sex. There's also one of him in some sort of flight suit standing in space or I don't know. But again, next time, Don, hire somebody else to draw them. There appears to be fluid pouring out of the seat of Trump's pants. So maybe I was wrong and it wasn't a drawing. Baseball cards and trading cards and digital cards, I know something about these things. 20 years ago, my old friends at Tops, for whom I was a consultant, tried something called eTops, where you bought the cards from them and they kept them for you and you had a digital wallet full of the cards and that went fine for a couple of days and then people said, wait, 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 the premise of baseball cards is you have them. They really exist. You keep them in your house. There have since been some more NFT-like things in sports cards, but they frankly have gone nowhere. So the premise is bad and the execution is worse, unless you want a picture of Trump with two horses behind him having sex. All in all, they reminded me, and not favorably, of a website that lets you select from thousands of images onto which they will Photoshop a photo of your dog or your cat. I actually had them made. They are terrific. They are seamless. They're perfectly sized, color corrected. My girl Stevie as president in suit and tie at the podium. My late Mishu as a doctor. Ted as a ball player. Rose, who loves to dig into corners and hide under couches, as an astronaut. And they were like 60 bucks a piece before the discount. And they literally could not be improved upon. Nice big prints. They look nice. They're well-made. Kitschy as it sounds, they're perfect. On the other hand, for only $40 more each, Trump just looks like a poorly photoshopped douchebag in a hat or a poorly photoshopped douchebag not in a hat or a poorly photoshopped douchebag standing in front of rump towel with horses having sex behind him. I mean, for crying out loud, for $99, you can go on eBay and you can buy a used ticket to his inauguration, which has some historical value, however stupid that historical stuff is. Or, you know, go crazy. Buy a used ticket to his first impeachment, only $899. Trust me, a much better investment. Back with Fridays with Thurber next. Thank you, Nancy Faust.
you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown, and since it is the weekend edition, it's time for some James Thurber. The catbird seat combines two of my all-time favorite things, Thurber and baseball broadcasting. As Thurber will reveal in the story, the title comes from a catchphrase used by the Brooklyn Dodgers legendary announcer Red Barber, the man who trained Vin Scully and is my late friend Vin's only true competition for greatest baseball play-by-play man of all time. I met Red Barber once. I interviewed him for CNN. He called me Keith throughout the interview. I was so starstruck, it's pretty much all I remember from the interview. Anyway, Burt Lancaster bought the movie rights to this story, and he got Billy Wilder to commit to direct it. Well, how come you've never heard of this perfect-sounding film, The Catbird Seat, directed by Billy Wilder? They sold the rights, and in 1960, the film was made, but they relocated it from Manhattan to Scotland starring Peter Sellers dressed up as an old man as Mr. Martin. It's okay, unless you've read the story 
or had it read to you from the Thurber Carnival, 1945, The Catbird Seat by James Thurber. Mr. Martin bought the pack of camels on Monday night in the most crowded cigar store on Broadway. It was theater time and seven or eight men were buying cigarettes. The clerk didn't even glance at Mr. Martin, who put the pack in his overcoat pocket and went out. If any of the staff at F&S had seen him buy the cigarettes, they would have been astonished. For it was generally known that Mr. Martin did not smoke and never had. No one saw him. It was just a week to the day since Mr. Martin had decided to rub out Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. The term rub out pleased him because it suggested nothing more than the correction of an error. In this case, an error of Mr. Fitweiler. Mr. Martin had spent each night of the past week working out his plan and examining it. As he walked home now, he went over it again. For the hundredth time, he resented the element of imprecision, the margin of guesswork that entered into the business. The project, as he had worked it out, was casual and bold. The risks were considerable. Something might go wrong anywhere along the line. And therein lay the cunning of his scheme. No one would ever see in the cautious, painstaking hand of Irwin Martin, head of the filing department at F&S, of whom Mr. Fitweiler had once said, Man is fallible, but Martin isn't. No one would see his hand, that is, unless he were caught in the act. Sitting in his apartment, drinking a glass of milk, Mr. Martin reviewed his case against Mrs. Old Jean Barrows, as he had every night for seven nights. He began at the beginning. Her quacking voice and braying laugh had first profaned the halls of F&S on March 7th, 1941. Mr. Martin had a head for dates. Old Roberts, the personnel chief, had introduced her as the newly appointed special advisor to the president of the firm, Mr. Fitweiler. The woman had appalled Mr. Martin instantly, but he had not shown it. He had given her his dry hand, a look of studious concentration, and a faint smile. Well, she said, looking at the papers on his desk, are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? As Mr. Martin recalled that moment over his milk, he squirmed slightly. He must keep his mind on her crimes as a special advisor, not on her peccadilloes as a personality. This he found difficult to do in spite of entering an objection and sustaining it. The faults of the woman as a woman kept chattering on in his mind like an unruly witness. She had, for almost two years now, baited him in the halls in the elevator, even in his own office, into which she romped now and then like a circus horse. She was constantly shouting these silly questions at him. Are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? Are you tearing up the pea patch? Are you hollering down the rain barrel? Are you scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel? Are you sitting in the catbird seat? It was Joey Hart one of Mr. Martin's two assistants, who had explained what the gibberish meant. She must be a Dodger fan, he had said. Red Baba announces the Dodger games over the radio, and he uses these expressions. 
Picked them up down south. Joey had gone on to explain one or two. Tearing up the pea patch meant going on a rampage. Sitting in the catbird seat meant sitting pretty like a batter with three balls and no strikes on him. Mr. Martin dismissed all this with an effort. It had been annoying. It had driven him near to distraction, but he was too solid a man to be moved to murder by anything so childish. It was unfortunate, he reflected, as he passed on to the important charges against Mrs. Barrows, that he had stood up under it so well. He had maintained always an outward appearance of polite tolerance. Why, I even believe you like the woman, Miss Paird, his other assistant, had once said to him. He had simply smiled. A gavel wrapped in Mr. Martin's mind, and the case proper was resumed. Mrs. Algene Barrows stood charged with willful, blatant, and persistent attempts to destroy the efficiency and system of FNS. It was confident, material, and relevant to review her advent and rise to power. Mr. Martin had got the story from Miss Paird, who seemed always able to find things out. According to her, Mrs. Barrows had met Mr. Fitwiler at a party where she had rescued him from the embraces of a powerfully built drunken man who had mistaken the president of F&S for a famous retired Middle Western football coach. She had led him to a sofa and somehow worked upon him a monstrous magic. The aging gentleman had jumped to the conclusion there and then that this was a woman of singular attainments, equipped to bring out the best in him and in the firm. A week later, he had introduced her into F&S as his special advisor. On that day, confusion got its foot in the door. After Miss Tyson, Mr. Brundage, and Mr. Bartlett had been fired, and Mr. Munson had taken his hat and stalked out, mailing in his resignation letter, old Roberts had been emboldened to speak to Mr. Fitwiler. He mentioned that Mr. Munson's department had become a little disrupted, and hadn't they perhaps better resume the old system there? Mr. Fitwiler had said certainly not. He had the greatest faith in Mrs. Barrow's ideas. They require a little seasoning. A little seasoning is all, he had added. Mr. Roberts had given it up. Mr. Martin reviewed in detail all the changes wrought by Mrs. Barrows. She had begun chipping at the cornices of the firm's edifice, and now she was swinging at the foundation stones with a pickaxe. Mr. Martin came now in his summing up to the afternoon of Monday, November 2, 1942, just one week ago. On that day, at 3 p.m., Mrs. Barrows had bounced into his office. Boo, she had yelled. Are you scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel? Mr. Martin had looked at her from under his green eyeshade, saying nothing. She had begun to wander about the office, taking it in with her great, popping eyes. Do you really need all these filing cabinets? She had demanded suddenly. Mr. Martin's heart had jumped. Each of these files, he had said, keeping his voice even, plays an indispensable part in the system of F&S. She had brayed at him, well, don't tear up the pea patch, and gone to the door. From there she had bawled, but you sure have got a lot of fine scrap in here. 
Mr. Martin could no longer doubt that the finger was on his beloved department. Her pickaxe was on the upswing, poised for the first blow. It had not come yet. He had received no blue memo from the enchanted Mr. Fitwiler, bearing nonsensical instructions deriving from this obscene woman. But there was no doubt in Mr. Martin's mind that one would be forthcoming. He must act quickly. Already a precious week had gone by. Mr. Martin stood up in his living room, still holding his milk glass. Gentlemen of the jury, he said to himself, I demand the death penalty for this horrible person. The next day, Mr. Martin followed his routine as usual. He polished his glasses more often and once sharpened an already sharp pencil, but not even Miss Paired noticed. Only once did he catch sight of his victim. She swept past him in the hall with a patronizing, Hi. At 5.30, he walked home as usual and had a glass of milk as usual. He had never drunk anything stronger in his life, unless you could count ginger ale. The late Sam Schlosser, the S of F and S, had praised Mr. Martin at a staff meeting several years before for his temperate habits. One of our most efficient workers neither drinks nor smokes, he had said. The results speak for themselves. Mr. Fitwiler had sat by, nodding approval. Mr. Martin was still thinking about that red-letter day as he walked over to the Schrafts restaurant on Fifth Avenue near 46th Street. He got there, as he always did, at 8 o'clock. He finished his dinner and the financial page of the New York Sun at quarter to nine, as he always did. It was his custom after dinner to take a walk. This time he walked down Fifth Avenue at a casual place. His gloved hands felt moist and warm, his forehead cold. He transferred the camels from his overcoat to a jacket pocket. He wondered as he did so if they did not represent an unnecessary note of strain. Mrs. Barrows smoked only Lucky's. It was his idea to puff a few puffs on a camel after the rubbing out, stub it out in the ashtray, holding her lipstick, saying Lucky's, and thus drag a small red herring across the trail. Perhaps it was not a good idea. It, it would take time. He might even choke too loudly. Mr. Martin had never seen the house on West 12th Street where Mrs. Barrows lived, but he had a clear enough picture of it. Fortunately, she had bragged to everybody about her ducky first-floor apartment in the perfectly darling three-story red brick. There would be no doorman or other attendants, just the tenants of the second and third floors. As he walked along, Mr. Martin realized that he would get there before 9.30. He had considered walking north on Fifth Avenue from Shrafts to a point from which it would take him until 10 o'clock to reach the house. At that hour, people were less likely to be coming in or going out. But the procedure would have made an awkward loop in the straight thread of his casualness, and he had abandoned it. It was impossible to figure when people would be entering or leaving the house anyway. There was a great risk at any hour. If he ran into anybody, he would simply have to place the rubbing out of old Jean Barrows in the inactive file forever. The same thing would hold true if there was someone in her apartment. In that case, he would just say that he had been passing by, recognized her charming house, and thought to drop in. It was 18 minutes after 9 when Mr. Martin turned into 12th Street. A man passed him, and a man and a woman talking. 
There was no one within 50 paces when he came to the house, halfway down the block. He was up the steps and in the small vestibule in no time, pressing the bell under the card that said Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. When the clicking in the lock started, he jumped forward against the door. He got inside fast, closing the door behind him. A bulb in a lantern hung from the hall ceiling on a chain seemed to give a monstrously bright light. There was nobody on the stair which went up ahead of him along the left wall. A door opened down the hall and the wall on the right. He went toward it swiftly on tiptoe. Well, for God's sakes, look who's here, bawled Mrs. Barrows, and her braying laugh rang out like the report of a shotgun. He rushed past her like a football tacker, bumping her. Hey, quit shoving, she said, closing the door behind them. They were in her living room, which seemed to Mr. Martin to be lighted by a hundred lamps. What's after you, she said. You're as jumpy as a goat. He found he was unable to speak. His heart was wheezing in his throat. I, yes, he finally brought out. She was jabbering and laughing as she started to help him off with his coat. No, no, he said. I'll put it here. He took it off and put it on a chair near the door. Your hat and gloves, too, she said. You're in a lady's house. He put his hat on top of the coat. Mrs. Barrows seemed larger than he had thought. He kept his gloves on. I was passing by, he said. I I recognized. Is there anyone here? She laughed louder than ever. No, she said. We're all alone. You're white as a sheet, you funny man. Whatever has come over you, I'll mix you a toddy. She started toward a door across the room. Scotch and soda be all right, but say you don't drink, do you? She turned and gave him her amused look. Mr. Martin pulled himself together. Scotch and soda will be all right, he heard himself say. He could hear her laughing in the kitchen. Mr. Martin looked quickly around the living room for the weapon. He had counted on finding one there. There were andirons and a poker and something in a corner that looked like an Indian club. None of them would do. It couldn't be that way. He began to pace around. He came to a desk... On it lay a metal paper knife with an ornate handle. Would it be sharp enough? He reached for it and knocked over a small brass jar. Stamps spilled out of it and fell onto the floor with a clatter. Hey! Mrs. Barrows yelled from the kitchen. Are you tearing up the pea patch? Mr. Martin gave a strange laugh. Picking up the knife, he tried its point against his left wrist. It was blunt. It wouldn't do. When Mrs. Barrows reappeared, carrying two highballs, Mr. Martin, standing there with his gloves on, became acutely conscious of the fantasy he had wrought. Cigarettes in his pocket, a drink prepared for him. It was all too grossly improbable. It was more than that. It was impossible. Somewhere in the back of his mind, a vague idea stirred sprouted. For heaven's sake, take off those gloves, said Mrs. Barrows. I always wear them in the house, said Mr. Martin. The idea began to bloom, strange and wonderful. She put the glasses on a coffee table in front of a sofa and sat on the sofa. Come over here, you odd little man, she said. Mr. Martin went over and sat beside her. It was difficult getting a cigarette out of the pack of camels, but he managed it. 
She held a match for him, laughing. Well, she said, handing him his drink, this is perfectly marvelous. You, with a drink and a cigarette. Mr. Martin puffed, not too awkwardly, and took a gulp of the highball. I drink and smoke all the time, he said. He clinked his glass against hers. Here's nuts to that old windbag Fitweiler, he said, and gulped again. The stuff tasted awful, but he made no grimace. Really, Mr. Martin, she said, her voice and posture changing. You are insulting our employer. Mrs. Barrows was now all special advisor to the president. I am preparing a bomb, said Mr. Martin, which will blow the old goat higher than hell. He had only had a little of the drink, which was not strong. It couldn't be that. Do you take dope or something? Mrs. Barrows asked coldly. Heroin, said Mr. Martin. I'll be coked to the gills when I bump that old buzzard off. Mr. Martin, she shouted, getting to her feet. That will be all of that. You must go at once. Mr. Martin took another swallow of the drink. He tapped his cigarette out in the ashtray and put the pack of camels on the coffee table. Then he got up. She stood glaring at him. He walked over and put on his hat and coat. Not a word about this, he said, and laid an index finger against his lips. All Mrs. Barrows could bring out was a, really? Mr. Martin put his hand on the doorknob. I'm sitting in the catbird seat, he said. He stuck his tongue out at her and left. Nobody saw him go. Mr. Martin got to his apartment, walking, well before 11. No one saw him go in. He had two glasses of milk after brushing his teeth, and he felt elated. It wasn't tipsiness, because he hadn't been tipsy. Anyway, the walk had worn off all effects of the whiskey. He got in bed and read a magazine for a while. He was asleep before midnight. Mr. Martin got to the office at 8.30 the next morning, as usual. At a quarter to nine, old Jean Barrows, who had never before arrived at work before 10, swept into his office. I'm reporting to Mr. Fitwiler now, she shouted. If he turns you over to the police, it's no more than you deserve. Mr. Martin gave her a look of shocked surprise. I beg your pardon, he said. Mrs. Barrows snorted and bounced out of the room, leaving Miss Paird and Joey Hart staring after her. "'What's the matter with that old devil now?' asked Miss Paird. "'I have no idea,' said Mr. Martin, resuming his work. The other two looked at him and then at each other. Miss Paird got up and went out. She walked slowly past the closed door of Mr. Fitweiler's office. Mrs. Barrows was yelling inside, but she was not braying. Miss Paird could not hear what the woman was saying. She went back to her desk.' Forty-five minutes later, Mrs. Barrows left the president's office and went into her own, shutting the door. It wasn't until half an hour later that Mr. Fitweiler sent for Mr. Martin. The head of the filing department, neat, quiet, attentive, stood in front of the old man's desk. Mr. Fitweiler was pale and nervous. He took his glasses off and twiddled them. He made a small bruffing sound in his throat. Martin, he said, you have been with us more than twenty years. Twenty-two, sir, said Mr. Martin. In that time, pursued the president, your work and uh, your manner have been exemplary. I trust so, sir, said Mr. Martin. 
I have understood, Martin, said Mr. Fitwiler, that you have never taken a drink or smoked. That is correct, sir, said Mr. Martin. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Fitwiler polished his glasses. You may describe what you did after leaving the office yesterday, Martin, he said. Certainly, sir, he said. I walked home, then I went to Schraft's for dinner. Afterward, I walked home again. I went to bed early, sir, and read a magazine for a while. I was asleep before 11. Ah, uh, yes, said Mr. Fitwiler again. He was silent for a moment, searching for the proper words to say to the head of the filing department. Mrs. Barrows, he said finally, Mrs. Barrows has worked hard, Martin, very hard. It grieves me to report that she has suffered a severe breakdown. It has taken the form of a persecution complex accompanied by distressing hallucinations. I'm very sorry, sir, said Mr. Martin. Mrs. Barrows is under the delusion, continued Mr. Fitwiler, that you visited her last evening and behaved yourself in an, uh, an unseemly manner. He raised his hand to silence Mr. Martin's little pained outcry. It is the nature of these psychological diseases, Mr. Fitwiler said, to fix upon the least likely and most innocent party as the um, source of persecution. These matters are not for the lay mind to grasp, Martin. I've just had my psychiatrist, Dr. Fitch, on the phone. Uh, he would not, of course, commit himself, but he made enough generalizations to substantiate my suspicions. I suggested to Mrs. Barrows, when she had completed her uh, story to me this morning, that she visit Dr. Fitch... Uh, for I suspected a condition at once. Uh, she flew, I regret to say, into a rage and demanded, requested, that I call you on the carpet. You may not know, Martin, but Mrs. Barrows had planned a reorganization of your department. Subject to my approval, of course, subject to my approval. This brought you rather than anyone else to her mind. But again, uh, that is a phenomenon for Dr. Fitch, not for us. So, Martin, I'm afraid Mrs. Barrow's usefulness here is at an end. I'm dreadfully sorry, sir, said Mr. Martin. It was at this point that the door to the office blew open with the suddenness of a gas main explosion, and Mrs. Barrow's catapulted through it. Is the little rat denying it? She screamed. He can't get away with that. Mr. Martin got up and moved discreetly to a point beside Mr. Fitwiler's chair. You drank and smoked at my apartment, she bawled at Mr. Martin, and you know it. You called Mr. Fitwiler an old windbag and said you were going to blow him up when you got coke to your gills on your heroin. She stopped yelling to catch her breath and a new glint came into her popping eyes. If you weren't such a drab, ordinary little man, she said, I'd think you'd planned it all, sticking your tongue out, saying you were sitting in the cat-buried seat because you thought no one would believe me when I told it. My God, it's really too perfect. She brayed loudly and hysterically, and the fury was on her again. She glared at Mr. Fitwiler. Can't you see how he has tricked us, you old fool? Can't you see his little game? 
But Mr. Fitweiler had been surreptitiously pressing all the buttons under the top of his desk, and employees of FNS began pouring into the room. Stockton, said Mrs. Fitweiler, you and Fishbein will take Mrs. Barrows to her home. Mrs. Powell, you will go with them. Stockton, who had played a little football in high school, blocked Mrs. Barrows as she made for Mr. Martin. It took him and Fishbein together to force her out of the door into the hall, crowded with stenographers and office boys. She was still screaming imprecations at Mr. Martin, tangled and contradictory imprecations. The hubbub finally died out down the corridor. I regret that this has happened, said Mr. Fitweiler. I shall ask you to dismiss it from your mind, Martin. Yes, sir, said Mr. Martin, anticipating his chiefs. That will be all by moving to the door. I will dismiss it. He went out and shut the door, and his step was light and quick in the hall. When he entered his department, he had slowed down to his customary gait, and he walked quietly across the room to the W-20 file, wearing a look of studious concentration. From the Thurber Carnival, The Catbird Seat by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. If you don't believe me, ask Elon Musk. Thank you for listening. At least for now, my ability to promote this through Twitter is hors de combat, as the French say. So I am not being egotistical this time. Get somebody new to subscribe, if you would be so kind. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth Year, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcers today were everybody. Everything else, though, was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 710th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. That's Donald Trump. He and I were both suspended by Twitter. Arrest Trump now while we still can. More Countdown Monday, bulletins as warranted. Till then, I'm Keith Lilberman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. 
So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.